Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust and all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And to Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 18. To 31. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Louisa, and I'm uh, one of the pastoral staff uh, here at St. John's in Ashfield, one of the three sites of Christchurch in West Arm. And it's a great joy that we can gather as uh, God's people this morning. And I just want to add my welcome to that of Simon's. Uh, as we uh, get into God's word this morning, uh, why don't we come before him in prayer? Um, this is a, a big topic, the topic of sin, the topic of, of what do we repent from. And so uh, let us come before God first um, in prayer. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you now uh, in humility, uh, knowing that you are God uh, we pray that you might give us insight and wisdom into your word, that you might uh, shape us by your spirit, and that we might uh, know you more and know the heart that you have for us more and more this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, it's been a crazy uh, past couple of weeks, hasn't it? We've all watched in horror and outrage of the invasion of Ukraine by Russian military forces. We've seen uh, the president, Vladimir Putin, grasping at power, seeking to take over land that is not his own. But he believes that it should be a part of Russia, that it should be his land. We have seen shocking moments in the news of loss of life even the loss of the lives of children. People have been trying to flee but are trapped. They cannot escape. 
their world has been consumed by war. But something that I found uh, particularly tragic in the stories that have been coming out of Ukraine is that the Russian soldiers, many of whom didn't know what they were going into. Some of them have been now uh, captured by Ukrainian soldiers and they were allowed to make phone calls back to their family. And many of them said, we didn't know that this is what we were doing. There's a war going on in Ukraine and their families were like, there's no war in Ukraine. That's not what's happening. They believed that they were involved in tactical exercises and were surprised when people started retaliating to them. They thought maybe they were going into Ukraine to liberate people, to bring freedom from oppression. They'd been so consumed by the lies and propaganda of Russian uh, conspirators to say that Ukraine was under Nazi rule. They needed to go in to to bring freedom. And yet that's not what has happened, is it? They have gone in as the invaders to bring devastation. Can you imagine being 18 or 19 or 20, being conscripted into the military service of a country and being forced to go to war? You have no opportunity to decide whether you fight or not. And you've been convinced that you're going into this place to bring freedom. You expected that the people would celebrate your success, your victory over evil. You expected thankfulness from those people that finally they were able to taste freedom again, only to come to realise that it was all a lie, that in fact you are the ones who are enacting evil. You are the ones who are bringing oppression of people You are the ones who are feared. And I think this is such a a clear example and a glimpse of the complexity of our world, isn't it? That our motivations and our actions, they're not as clearly aligned as we might first expect. We can see that people in our world do terrible things when they apparently have good and true motives. But we know that people also can do really good things for the world, but actually that their motives are are wrong and evil, that their intent is not truly for good. And this moment in our history of, of war entering into our society, into our world, reveals again the corruptibility of our hearts, the brokenness of our world, the rejection of our God. Here at church, we're in uh, the second week of our four-week teaching series looking at the life-giving art of repentance. Last Sunday, we laid the foundation for fruitful repentance, the grace of God in person and death of Jesus. If you want to change your life, if you want to grow, you need more of Jesus, not just more strategies and techniques, but grace. Grace properly understood always brings us back to the question of sin, doesn't it, though? Because God's grace is for the unlovely. It's to sinners like you and me 
that this grace is given. And so as we keep thinking about this topic of repentance, we need to look at what is it that we are called to repent from? What is it that we are called to turn away from, turning back to our loving and wonderful God? And so this morning we're going to explore what the Bible is revealing to us about what the heart of sin is and our desperate need for the grace of our God. Two points that uh, we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, First of all, we have a common narrative. We have a desire to be like God, to be the ones who determine what is good and what is evil. And secondly, uh, we have an underlying problem. We reject the love of God, and in turn, we receive corruption of our hearts. But firstly, we're going to think about the common narrative, the desire to be like God, determining what is good and what is evil. We might not think at first glance, when we look at the culture around us, to the people living in the inner west, the people living in Australia, that our culture thinks much about the categories of sin. Sin is not a word that we're going to hear with our non-Christian friends and family, not a word we're going to hear in the secular media. But that doesn't mean that the concept is sin is absent from their understanding and, and decisions about the world in which they live. Now, on the one hand, you might say, you think that our culture says nothing is sinful, not a single thing. You can do anything you want. You do you is the catchphrase of our culture, isn't it? You can have sex with whoever you want at any time you want and as many people as you want. You can consume as much pornography as you want because, well, you're just fulfilling the desires and your needs. No one can tell you who to love or who to express yourself to in that love. You also can believe whatever you want to believe. Truth, well, that's now just an opinion anyway. You don't need to engage with those voices that disagree with you, that think differently. You can shape your entire reality by only listening to those who agree with you, who hold your values, who share your ideals about the world. You can pursue whatever dream you have and not let anything stand in your way. Do whatever you need to reach the top. And, well, if people can't be happy about your success, then it's better to not have them in your life anyways. They're standing in the way of your happiness and fulfilment. So on the one hand, our culture says that nothing is sin. But on the other hand, sometimes our culture has very rigid ideas and concepts of what is right and wrong. Maybe you've heard that people saying, you can't read J.K. Rowling anymore. Her stance on transgender means she is harmful and dangerous. Or you can't believe that apology offered by Ellen DeGeneres. She's a toxic bully. She will never change. Her show needs to be removed. Or maybe those Dr. Seuss books, the ones that sound like maybe they're talking about racism. Well, we need to make sure that they're discontinued, that we are protected from the evils that this world is trying to imprint on, our, on young minds. 
the culture calls us to a stance of abstinence in relation to any content or person that rejects these ideas of right and wrong. Now, whatever your perception is of the legitimacy of some of these decisions by our culture, there is this broader narrative at play, isn't there? On certain topics, our culture says there is no room for error. Even if you made a mistake 15 or 20 or 30 years ago, our culture doesn't give us the opportunity to grow, to change. Often there is not even any hope of forgiveness. Of course, there's things in this world that really do deserve consequences. But can you see the clash of those worldviews? The view that nothing is wrong and the view that there are rigid views of right and wrong. They can't go together. The modern framework doesn't have an answer for us that clearly defines what is right and wrong. The Lutheran theologian Martin Marty, he helpfully explains some of the culture that we live in. He says, we live in a culture where everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. Uh, This was in an article that Tish Harrison Warren uh, wrote in the New York Times, uh, a Christian uh, in America, and she says, we try to convince ourselves that there is only personal appetites and preferences, but we cannot quite shake a sense of good and evil because most of us retain a sense of justice, a sense of what we do matters. But when someone violates our unspoken sense of justice or righteousness, then there's no way of atonement. There is no absolution. There is no restoration. And so this raises for us a question. Who is it that should be able to determine what is good and what is evil? Should an individual be able to create the morality of the life that they live by? That as long as they're consistent in their morale, in their way of assessing good and evil, then their ideals shouldn't be questioned. Should a society be able to determine what is good and what is evil? What measures are they using to make those decisions? Do they overemphasize certain evils based on arbitrary social norms? There's this emptiness behind the ever-changing nature of what our culture deems to be right and wrong. And we have to make sure we're not a step behind because all of a sudden, we too can be the one that's labelled as wrong, the one that has been cancelled, or that we have been seen as the ones who are downright evil. But this wrestling for the power to determine what is good and what is evil is not new to the narrative of human history. It's not just the Western culture in the inner West that has wrestled with this. Adam and Eve were persuaded by the serpent in the garden to grasp for themselves this knowledge, a knowledge that is not merely intellectual or observing what is good and bad. It's a knowing that sets oneself as the ability to distinguish and determine the nature of what is good and what is evil. Listen to the words of Genesis 3. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The created sought to take on for themselves a role that was only ever meant for our creator. Even the possibility of being like God, equal with God, is too tantalizing for the first humans to to resist. They take and eat. They want the desire to be able to determine what is good and what is evil. And we see this desire continue across scripture. God continually reveals in the Old Testament the ways in which he deems is good and evil. What he deems is the way to follow him, the way of holy and righteous life. But the people of Israel constantly reject that. They reject his holy laws and believe that they themselves are the ones who can determine what is good and what is evil. And when Jesus arrives in the New Testament on the scene, things are no different there. Here in uh, Matthew 23, Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The Pharisees and teachers of the law came across as righteous. They convinced those around them that they knew what it was to be good to choose the good and righteous path. But they actually believed that they knew better than God. They added rules upon rules upon rules to the law that God had given them to make sure that no one even took a step towards disobedience. They thought that they had the truth, the answer to what it looked like to determine the good and evil of this world. But Jesus convicts them that although on the outside they appear good, much more righteous in appearance than you and I often look, but in reality their hearts were full of evil. And Jesus questions the Pharisees' assessment of what they deem to be good and evil. He sees their grasping of power, their desire to be like God, to be equal with him, to even stand in place of God. But this challenging of the Pharisees, of the teachers of the law, it confronts their power. And so the only way that they can retain their power, they believe, is to bring an end to the the life of the only righteous one, Jesus. However, we're not immune to this temptation 
the temptations of Adam and Eve, the temptations of the Pharisees, or even the culture around us. There are equally examples over the ages where the church has similarly wrestled for power, the power to determine good and evil, the power to be like God. How often do we hear the phrase in the world and too often in the church, oh, but that person is a good person. They would have never committed abuse against that woman. Or they would have never enacted bullying and power and control to those around them. We have this perception that if someone is good most of the time, then they must be truly good. That they are deserving of the praise and honour that they receive. But that too is hollow. We know that we are more complex than just good action, bad action. Good action, bad action. Have you ever played that game where you have to separate the good ingredients from the rubbish? Good ingredient, bad ingredient. Good action, bad action. Sometimes we feel like maybe we can just tip the scales in our favour and be like, look how good I am. There's all these good pieces and ingredients that I've put over here. Just ignore the rubbish that's kind of hiding behind. Those bad things, that, those bad actions or those bad thoughts that are there, they're not really that important. In our desire to be like God and in our determining of good and evil, how often is it that we detach our motivations, our thoughts, desires and affections from the actions that we see? We can only really judge people's actions, can't we, as individuals? We can't see the inside of someone's heart. We can't see their motivations, whether they're pure or wrong. But we've also been taught that the totality of sin is just these actions. And this oversimplification of sin tries to put people in neat categories, good people, bad people. This creates for us the solution that if we just work really hard to be good people, then that's all that I need to do. And maybe that actually proves to God that I was good all along, that I was deserving of him and his love and his salvation. But not all of us are able to change our actions like that. And so this belief of our actions being the totality of sin, if we are constantly making mistakes, well, maybe it means that God isn't really able to save me. Maybe God is angry and disappointed with me. Maybe I am the failure here and I am undeserving and unable to be brought to salvation. It's too narrow to see sin as just our actions. To, for us to determine good and evil just by seeing the deeds of those around us. But also, it impacts our hearts as well, doesn't it? There's a deeper issue at root here. I think at times we can find comfort if God cares for the evil that is out there in the world. We want God to care about sin and evil when it sings like, Russia invading Ukraine. When it sings like the injustice, injustice experienced by Indigenous Australians, 
who lose their life in detention. We want God to be righteous and act in judgment over government officials who sanctioned the oppression of Uyghur people in China. We want God to care about that evil. We're happy for him to make actions against those evils. But we're not so happy when he turns his insight to our own hearts, to the evil that resides within. God shouldn't really care about that mistake that I made the other day, that lie that I told, that motivation that wasn't quite pure. You know, it's not really that bad. It doesn't really classify as evil. He should just really leave those things be and just focus on the big out there sort of things. But you see, our temptations are just like those in our culture. They're just like the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. We want to be like God, determining what is good and what is evil. We want to be the ones that decide what a righteous path for our own life looks like. And just as a snake whispers to Eve in the garden, you will not certainly die. So too do our own hearts and minds whisper that nothing bad is actually going to happen. Our hearts should get what they want. Surely God doesn't really care if we get drunk on the weekends, if we have sex outside of marriage. God doesn't need to be aware of the loathing that fills our hearts when we see our colleague promoted before us or that we hoard loads of money for ourselves that we can get the security and safety we deserve. When we look at our lives, all being equal, we definitely fall much more on the good than on the side of bad. Surely that's good enough. It's so easy to relativize our actions, isn't it? We're not like that bad person over there. They're the actually bad and sinful person. But we too diminish good and evil to mere actions. And by what, by what suits our situation and values at a particular moment in our life. We can see this common narrative across history. The desire to be like God, to stand in place of him, and to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. But the question remains, what drives this desire? What drives it? And the underlying problem that we have is that in this desire, we are rejecting the love of God. And that leads to the corruption of our hearts, the corruption of our loves. Ultimately, we believe the same lie that is at the heart of the first act of sin and rebellion in the garden. Listen to the words of the serpent again. For God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The doubt sets in. It seems like God is withholding something from us, something that is our right something that is good and attractive and wonderful. And with that doubt, we are convinced that God is not actually good, that God is not actually loving, that he doesn't want us to have what we truly need to thrive. And so we long to usurp our creator, 
to be governed by our own hearts and our own desires. And when we reject the loving provision of God and his acts of love towards us, we are rejecting the very core of the being of our God. God is love. He does not just act in loving ways. He is love. And in rejecting the heart of God, our hearts in turn have been corrupted. And this causes us to have a disorder in our loves and affections, our thoughts and desires, and as a result, our actions. We have such a narrow and limited view of good and evil. We see it as merely wrong actions. But God reveals in Scripture that we have such a deeper problem, the problem of our hearts. Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And in Romans 1, therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised, amen. And Matthew 15, don't you see, whatever enters the mouth that goes into the stomach and then out of the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these things defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, Theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. We often think that by, if we choose by sheer willpower to do the right thing, then that's all that matters. Our minds can overcome our creatureliness. If we just change our thoughts, then our actions will clearly follow but it's not that easy, is it? Theologian uh, Herman Riederbos, he says this, humanity is led and governed by the heart. It is the centre of human existence. There's a poignant example of this in the movie Love Actually. I wonder if if you've seen it. Uh, I have definitely enjoyed watching it many times. Alan Rickman's character buys a gold necklace There's the intensity of the build-up of trying to buy this necklace, trying to hide it from his wife. And at first we think maybe that's where it's going to. His wife even finds the necklace hidden in his coat pocket. And so on Christmas Eve, she finds the package that looks the right shape and size and opens it, expecting this gorgeous, beautiful necklace to be there. But she's disappointed. The thing that she finds is a CD of her favourite artist. And in that moment, in that scene, we see in her heart and in her mind the realisation that that necklace was given to another woman. The scene shifts and we see the young woman who is Alan Rickman's secretary as she adorns herself with that beautiful necklace. And the scene returns to Emma Thompson's character, Alan Rickman's wife, 
and we can see the weight of devastation, the impact of corrupted loves. Now, the demonstration of love is not wrong. To give a thoughtful, precious gift to the one you love, that's a beautiful thing. That's a good thing. But this expression of love is corrupted by being given to the wrong person, to another woman. The love is being attributed not to the person that is, he is connected to, but to the wrong person. And we too have had our affections and our loves corrupted. In rejecting the love of God, we are unable to order our hearts and desires to God. And we can similarly at times express love rightly. But maybe we express it to the wrong person or the wrong thing. Or sometimes we try to seek the, to love the right person or the right thing. But the expression of that love is all wrong and broken. Our hearts desire to love but if that first love is of our hearts is not to God, then we love other things to an extent that they were never meant to hold in our hearts. A love that was only meant to ever be given to God. And then our minds, our thoughts and our actions follow what we love. We hold tight to these loves that were never meant to be the centre of our being. Things that were never meant to govern our lives. Perhaps our hearts love power. Our hearts believe that we deserve power, that we deserve success. And so we think about ways to control and manipulate those around us. We want to make sure that our ego stays intact. And so we bully those around us. We push them out of our way in order that we can be the top, that we can maintain the power. Perhaps our hearts love influence, popularity. Maybe we love to know what is going on, that we need to have all the gossip, that we want to be the ones that everyone comes to for advice in order that they might see that we have the wisdom, that we are the ones who know what is good and right. Perhaps our hearts love intimacy, We lust over intimacy with those who we are not meant to be intimate with. We're not satisfied with friends if we are unmarried. Or we're not satisfied with the intimacy of our spouse and our family. So we consume porn. We long to fill our love with someone else, fill our lives with someone else that is not our spouse. We fall into the trap of adultery. Perhaps our hearts love security. We are constantly in our hearts comparing ourselves with those around us. We see the success and joy that other people have. And so we need to hold on to our wealth in order to ensure that we have the security and safety that we need. Perhaps our hearts love many things in place of God. And what our hearts love, our thoughts follow, and our actions are are shown to be what they are. 
But Jesus, he walks a different path. He gives us hope to a different future. If we live in a life that determines that we are like God, that we know what is good and right, and when our loves are disordered, we're stuck. We're trapped by the weight of sin. But Jesus walks a different path for us. In, in Jesus' humanity, Philippians 2 says he doesn't cling to equality with God. Even though that's his right, he is God. He should be able to cling to that equality. But he lays it aside in order to be obedient. And even in the garden, we see moments where Jesus is wrestling with the desires within him, the desire to not face suffering and death. And yet he knows his father truly. He knows the love of God. And so he's able to lay aside his wrestling and to follow the path of God. Jesus walks a different path for us. But he does it not just to be a model for us. He does it to achieve for us the salvation that we so desperately need. The freedom of forgiveness that we so desperately long for. He loved us when we rejected him. When we said to God and his love that we didn't trust it, that we didn't believe it to be good. We wanted to put ourselves in the place of God. When we wanted to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. That is when Jesus entered into our humanity. That is when Jesus came into this world to be the light and path for us. To be the one who walked obediently all the way to the cross so that we might have that grace and forgiveness that only he can bring. And so as we look this morning, we have two things that we've been considering in terms of sin and what do we repent from. The common narrative, our desire to be like God, determining what is good and evil. And the underlying problem, that we reject the love of God and in turn we have corruption in our hearts. And now it seems a bit tricky to leave us in that moment, doesn't it? In the moment, next week we're going to hear about what it looks like to repent. How is it that we repent? What is the freedom that we get from repentance? but just so that we're not left in the weight of this, the weight of sin. Jesus points us to the path of what it looks like to receive forgiveness, to receive his grace. We are to be people who surrender our hearts to God. We are the people who trust in the loving provision of God, the one who is love. To know that he is good and that he has a perfect plan for this world, that he knows what is good and evil and right for us. And that in repentance, that we realign our hearts to love God first. So as we go into this week, let us be people who long to live in a, a life of repentance, to keep coming back to God, to keep realigning our hearts to him, to put the love of God first. And when that happens, when we do that alongside the grace of God, as we walk with him, he then transforms our hearts that we might change our lives and our actions to be more in line with the ways of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are the God of love, that you 
know what it is to live in this world. You know the challenges that we face. You know how easy it is for us to think that we could do a better job, that we know better than you of what is good and what is evil in this world. We know that our hearts have rejected you and we are so sorry for that, Lord. But even in our ungodliness, even in those moments where we rejected you, when we tried to stand in your place, your love for us never failed. And in your love, you entered our world through your son, Jesus, to walk the path of righteousness for us, to walk in love and obedience of you, our Saviour and our God. And we pray that you might be a God who transforms our hearts, that you might draw us more and more each day in likeness of your son, for your honour and for your glory. Amen.